electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli live from separate locations. Uh, Jim has the morning off. You'll see him tonight. As Becky says, Fed Chair Powell said to make some comments at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. We're going to take that live. Futures are flat in the meantime, coming off that late day sell off yesterday. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman with some uh, of uh, Powell's remarks. Morning, Steve. Good morning, Carl. Fed Chairman Jay Powell will say that the path ahead is, quote, highly uncertain. And he is concerned about he sees significant downside risk to the outlook. He's concerned, among other things, about a prolonged recession and a possible weak recovery if the government doesn't get the stimulus and the relief correct. He says additional relief may be needed beyond that which has already been done. Concerned that liquidity problems could turn into solvency problems. Policies, he says, should be in place right now to address, quote, a range of possible outcomes. Additional fiscal support, he said, can avoid long-term damage. The coronavirus crisis, he says, raises those long-term concerns that he was talking about. The U.S. response to this point, he says, he says, has been swift and forceful. The Fed has acted, quote, with unprecedented speed and force and will use all of its tools. He cites a survey coming out from the Fed tomorrow, which shows in the month of March, 40 percent of households making less than $40,000 have lost a job in March. After the crisis, he says, we'll put these tools away. A very downbeat overall message from the Federal Reserve Chairman. Carl? All right, Steve, let's get right to the webcast. Here's the Fed chair with uh, Adam Posen of Peterson. Monetary policy and their interaction is critical. It's very hard to imagine we could have anyone better than Jay Powell. <clears throat> He's now in. Thank you for coming back to the Peterson Institute, Chairman Powell. Thanks very much, Adam. It's, it's great to be back. <clears throat> I have some uh, brief remarks, and then I'll look forward to our discussion. Uh, the coronavirus has left a devastating human and economic toll in its wake as it has spread around the globe. This is a worldwide public health crisis, and healthcare workers have been the first responders, showing courage and determination and earning our lasting gratitude. So have the legions of other essential workers who put themselves at risk every day on our behalf. As a nation, we have temporarily withdrawn from many kinds of economic and social activity to help slow the spread of the virus. Some sectors of the economy have been effectively closed since mid-March. People have put their lives and livelihoods on hold, making enormous sacrifices to protect not just their own health and that of their loved ones, but also their neighbors and the broader community. While we're all affected, the burden has fallen most heavily on those least able to bear it. The scope and speed of this downturn are without modern precedent, significantly worse than any recession since World War II. We are seeing a severe decline in economic activity and, in, and employment, and already the job gains of the last decade have been erased. Since the pandemic arrived in force just two months ago, more than 20 million people have lost their jobs. A Fed survey being released tomorrow reflects findings similar to many others 
Among people who were working in February, almost 40% of those in households making less than $40,000 a year had lost a job in March. This reversal of economic fortune has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future. This downturn is different from those that came before it. <clears throat> Earlier in the post-World War II period, recessions were sometimes linked to a cycle of high inflation followed by Fed tightening. The lower inflation levels of recent decades have brought a series of long expansions, often accompanied by the buildup of imbalances over time. Asset prices that reached unsupportable levels, for instance, or important sectors of the economy, such as housing, that boomed unsustainably. The current downturn is unique in that it is attributable to the virus and the steps taken to limit its fallout. This time, high inflation was not a problem. There was no economy-threatening bubble to pop and no unsustainable boom to bust. The virus is the cause, not the usual suspects. Something worth keeping in mind as we respond. Today, I will briefly discuss <clears throat> the measures taken so far to offset the economic effects of the virus and the path ahead. <clears throat> Governments around the world have responded <clears throat> quickly with measures to support workers who have lost income and businesses that have either closed or seen a sharp drop in activity. The response here in the United States has been particularly swift and forceful. To date, <clears throat> Congress has provided roughly $2.9 trillion in support for households, businesses, healthcare providers, and state and local governments, about 14% of GDP. While the coronavirus economic shock appears to be the largest on record, the fiscal response has also been the fastest and largest response for any post-war downturn. <clears throat> Pardon me. At the Fed, we've also acted with unprecedented speed and force. After rapidly cutting the federal funds rate close to zero, we took a wide array of additional measures to facilitate the flow of credit in the economy, which can be grouped into four areas. First, outright purchases of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities to restore functionality in these critical markets. Second, <clears throat> liquidity and funding measures, including discount window measures, expanded swap lines with foreign central banks, and with treasury backing to support smooth functioning in money markets. Third, with additional backing from the Treasury, <clears throat> facilities to more direct, directly support the flow of credit to households, businesses, and state and local governments. And fourth, temporary regulatory adjustments to encourage and allow banks to expand their balance sheets to support their household and business customers. Their household and business customers. The Fed takes actions such as these only in extraordinary circumstances, like those we face today. For example, our authority to extend credit directly to private non-financial businesses and state and local governments exists only in unusual and exigent circumstances and with the consent of the Secretary of the Treasury. When this crisis is behind us, we will put these emergency tools away. While the economic response has been both timely and appropriately large, it may not be the final chapter, given that the path ahead is both highly uncertain and subject to significant downside risks. Economic forecasts are uncertain in the best of times, and today the virus raises a new set of questions. How quickly and sustainably will it be brought under control? Can new outbreaks be avoided as social distancing measures lapse? 
How long will it take for confidence to return and normal spending to resume? And what will be the scope and timing of new therapies, testing, or a vaccine? The answers to these questions will go a long way towards setting the timing and pace of the economic recovery. Since the answers are currently unknowable, policies will need to be ready to address a range of possible outcomes. The overall policy response to date has provided a measure of relief and stability and will provide some support to the recovery when it comes. But the coronavirus crisis raises longer-term concerns as well. <clears throat> the record shows that deeper and longer recessions can leave behind lasting damage to the productive capacity of the economy. Avoidable household and business insolvencies can weigh on growth for years to come. Long stretches of unemployment can damage or end workers' careers as their skills lose value and professional networks dry up and leave families in greater debt. The loss of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses across the country would destroy the life's work and family legacy of many businesses and community leaders and limit the strength of the recovery when it comes. These businesses are a principal source of job creation, something we will need sorely as people seek to return to work. A prolonged recession and weak recovery could also discourage business investment and expansion, further limiting the resurgence of jobs as well as the growth of the capital stock and the pace of technological advancement. The result could be an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes. We ought to do what we can to avoid these outcomes, and that may require additional policy measures. At the Fed, we will continue to use our tools to their fullest until the crisis has passed and the economic recovery is well underway. Recall, though, that the Fed has lending powers, not spending powers. A loan from a Fed facility can provide a bridge across temporary interruptions to liquidity, and those loans will help many borrowers get through the current crisis. But the recovery may take some time to gather momentum and the passage of time can turn liquidity problems into solvency problems. Additional fiscal support could be costly, but worth it if it helps avoid long-term damage and leaves us with a stronger recovery. This trade-off is one for our elected representatives who wield powers of taxation and spending. Thank you again, and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> um, I'd like to start where you started, uh, Jay. You have, for a long time, and particularly since becoming chair, spoken about the distributional aspects of running the economy hot, of the importance of full employment. And until the pandemic hit, we were getting very close to something that looked genuinely like full employment with some growth and convergence in incomes for excluded groups and growth in incomes for those groups. As you pointed out, it's those least able financially to bear this burden who are being hit right now. So going forward, do you see us as possible to get back to the kind of full employment we had? You've mentioned scarring of workers. How much does quick action now benefit us in terms of the longer term unemployment rate? And also, in the past, sometimes when people talk about hysteresis, you didn't use that technical term, but the long-term damage from recessions to workers and businesses. Um, it's been a two-edged sword. People say we can't come up, can't get the NARU down, we can't get the unemployment down because there's been scarring. Whereas what the Fed, I think, demonstrated in recent years is you should experiment 
to see how low you can go with unemployment. So when we get through this crisis, how do you see the Fed's role in terms of its mandate on unemployment? Um, first, let me say um, it was uh, it was a great period to watch unemployment decline and continue declining and continue declining and not see either wage or price inflation move up. And I think we've learned something very fundamental uh, about our ability to associate unemployment, levels of unemployment with inflation or indeed other imbalances. And I think that's a lesson we'll be, we'll be carrying forward. It's also been, frankly, uh, it was, we were, over the course of the last year or so with our Fed Listens events, we made a series of, uh, of 14 different events and engaged with different communities all across America, uh, including in particular low and moderate income communities. And what we heard was that this was the best labor market in 50 years or in, in people's lifetimes. And uh, it was th their strong advice was, please just keep this going. You know, we're, we're, we're feeling opportunity we haven't felt. They didn't feel the first seven or eight years of the expansion, but they began to feel that in years, you know, nine, 10 and 11. So it was a great feeling. And I think two months ago, we were looking ahead at more of that and thinking further healing and, and further addressing of these issues. So it's particularly painful to see uh, all of that uh, put aside, at least temporarily. And, and as I mentioned, the numbers show clearly that it's it's more recent hires and lower paid uh, people who are bearing the brunt of this, although people are suffering all across the income spectrum. Um, so in terms of in terms of getting back, uh, I would say that uh, we I would say that probably uh, over the course of the next month or so, unemployment will peak. And then as we return to more normal levels of, act, of economic activity, it's a reasonable expectation that unemployment will start to decline again. And it may decline sharply, but it's also likely to remain well above the levels that we saw earlier this year and all through uh, 2019 and 18, uh, which were 50-year lows in unemployment. So um, it'll take some time to get back to where we were. Uh, I have every reason to think we can get back there. The economy should substantially recover uh, once the virus is under control. Um, so ending with your final question, though, I, I think it's, it is a major takeaway for the, for, for the way I look and the way we, we, we're looking at the economy now at the Fed um, to place probably less weight on real-time estimates of the natural rate of unemployment because we see that uh, we were able to move down to 3.5% and be there without really any sign of a reaction from inflation or from other imbalances uh, in, in the economy. So um, it's uh, a, a place we, we can get back to, we will get back to, it'll take some time. The main thing to do is to get on that road to recovery and then just stay on it for, for a long period of time. And I think that's, uh, that's what I expect will happen. Terrific. And I want to praise you for long before this crisis, talking about not having too much faith in the stars and being more pragmatic on the data. Um, turning to the second main point from your remarks, you, in my view, rightly emphasize the idea that more stimulus, but not just stimulus, more support for the supply side of the economy is needed and that it will probably have to be fiscal policy, not monetary policy that does that. In short, that if we cut off 
fiscal stimulus too small too soon. It's not just a demand issue, it's a supply side issue. That said, there are concerns some people raise about the fiscal policy in the future, even though all reasonable fiscal hawks know we should be spending right now. So the question is, what does fiscal responsibility look like a year or two down the road or three, especially if we will still have 10%, 8% unemployment, long-term unemployment? How should we, obviously this is for elected officials to think about, but what kinds of principles would you want them to be thinking about in terms of the recovery of the economy? And what role can the Fed play? When I was at Bank of England, I got into a public tiff with the governor then, Mervyn King, Governor King thought it was the role of the bank and the governor to lecture the parliament about fiscal responsibility. I didn't. What role do you think the Fed has to play in disciplining fiscal policy going forward? We, we don't uh, play a formal role in fiscal policy, and it meaning that uh, we wouldn't take a position, I wouldn't take a position supporting a particular bill uh, I might ask questions, answer questions that I get privately from members about things, but it's not our role to uh, supervise Congress. It's actually the other way around. Congress, we're, we're a creature of uh, congressional action and they have oversight over us. But like other Fed chairs through time, I, I have said uh, things that are fairly high level about getting back on a sustainable fiscal path over time. And I do think that's important. And and appropriate just because it's important for the long run good of the economy, which is which is part of our part of our bailiwick. As I mentioned, you know, it's worth remembering Congress is, has really moved quickly and in real with real force here and appropriately. So uh, this is the biggest shock our economy has felt in modern times. And this is the biggest fiscal response. It is far larger than any fiscal response. And it came very, very quickly. So that that's a good thing. The issue is that there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. Um, it may take even just a few more months than we would like for the economy to recover. Um, we, my colleagues and I have um, been speaking to a wide range of, uh, of leaders of not-for-profit, for-profit businesses all across the U.S. economy, all different kinds of businesses. And what comes through is there, there is a sense that uh, a growing sense, I think, that the the recovery may come more slowly than we would like, but it will come, and that may mean that it's necessary to for us to do more. And you know, the the trade off is this: as I, as I mentioned in my remarks, we know that long periods of unemployment uh, leave a shadow over the labor force and over our economy and over people's lives on mass. We also know that waves of bankruptcies can can weigh on economic activity for years. If you think about the small and medium sized businesses that are really the heart of our economy and the heart of job creation, those are the those are typically, you know, often anyway, the, the product of generations worth of work to create. And if they avoidably become insolvent just because economic activity doesn't recover fast enough, I think we would lose more than just that business. I think we lose, uh, we lose, uh, something fundamental and, uh, it will be, it won't be able to be replaced, um, you know, quickly. In terms of fiscal, uh, you know, fiscal discipline, I absolutely believe that we, we must, and indeed we, we will eventually have to return to a sustainable fiscal path. And that just means that you've got to get the economy growing faster than the debt. That and then, and then over and have that happen for a long period of time and gradually uh, reduce the ratio of the debt 
to our to the to the size of the economy. That's how you do it successfully, and many countries have done it successfully over a period of time like that. And I I do think the time to do that is during good times, uh, you know, when when the economy is strong and and unemployment is low. That's the time to be addressing those concerns. I think now when we are facing, you know, the biggest shock that the economy has had in modern times is for me, not the time to prioritize considerations like that. I do think that we can come back to them fairly quickly, which is to say, you know, a few years down the road when when the economy is is well and truly recovered or at least mostly recovering. Um, so. Thank you for that. Uh, turning to some operational monetary policy issues, of course, all kinds of market people and reporters would love to ask you about negative rates. Mm-hmm. I would like, before getting what I'm sure will be your answer on that, um, <laughs> I, I would like to ask a little more deeply about the thinking behind negative rates in the U.S. current context. So one way of looking at it is, of course, that QE and rate cuts are essentially substitutes. And so that if you can do more QE or all these various credit facilities and interventions, the four buckets that you listed, you could always scale that up and not bother with negative rates, which may have negative political effects as well as economic effects. A flip side is that on the other side, there are people who argue negative rates have a particular use in terms of currency valuation. But also, as my colleagues Olivier Jean and Joseph Gagnon have argued, it might enable more QE because it gives you more space. Just broadly speaking, how do you feel about the arguments for and against negative rates in the U.S. at this point? So, Adam, let me start by saying that um, the committee's view on uh, on negative rates really has has not changed. Uh, this is not something that we're that we're looking at. We chose not to implement negative rates uh, during the global financial crisis and the recovery, and instead we relied, as you pointed out, on forward guidance and asset purchases. Asset purchases when we were when we were at the near the zero bound, and we've said that we intend to continue relying on those tools, which uh, are tried and and uh, they are now a part of our toolkit. Um, in fact, we revisited this at last October's, just way back in October. Uh, revisited this question, and uh, the minutes said that all uh, FOMC participants, and that's not a sentence you get to say very often, all <laughs> FOMC participants currently did not, uh, that judge that, that negative rates currently did not appear to be uh, an attractive monetary policy tool in the United States. So I, I, I would say a couple of reasons behind that. One is we do feel that our tools work. The, the tools that we have used, forward guidance and asset purchases work, we're now doing uh, uh, these uh, 13 three facilities. We think they work too. So we think we have a good toolkit and it works and, and we have evidence that it works. And I think uh, that's what we'll, we'll, be, we'll be using. Um, also the evidence on the, the effectiveness of negative rates is, is very mixed. It's very mixed. There's no, uh, I, there are research that says that they've been effective. Uh, there are plenty of doubters. Uh, and the issue really is the concern over over uh, interrupting the intermediation process and, uh, you know, reducing bank profitability, thereby reducing uh, the availability of credit in the economy. So it, it's it's not it's a it's an it's an unsettled area, I would call um, call it. Uh, I know that there are there are fans of the policy, but uh, for now, it's not something that we're not something that we're considering. We think we have a good toolkit and that's the one we'll be using. 
delighted to hear you say that. Um, let me turn now to another question about your toolkit. So some of the facilities, as you said, inherently what the Federal Reserve does is provide people with liquidity, with loans, with temporary bridges. Um, in the past financial crisis in 2008, 2009, one issue was money was put out through QE, through cuts and rates and other measures, but it didn't get invested in the real economy because, you know, the old Keynesian notion of pushing on the string because ex there was great uncertainty, expectations were poor and so on. What makes you think that some of the facilities that are being made available now will be taken up in a way that they and then used in the real economy in a way that they weren't, say, in 2008 to 2010? I mean, will the Main Street lending work if you're running a small restaurant, a small nail salon and, and a small tourist guiding business? I mean, God willing, I know you want to help these people and we would all like to help these people, but those sectors may shrink. In, in the real world. So why do we think they're going to take these loans? Well, um, as, so as I mentioned in my, in my remarks, um, we can address liquidity problems. And that is, in fact, the problem that many companies find themselves facing. Um, companies that are, that are really very directly affected by, uh, by the coronavirus uh, uh, are in a special place, the, you know, the airline, hotels, uh, some restaurants and things like that. And really, um, uh, we will need to see the economy recover fairly quickly um, for them to benefit from this. But we're, we're, we're in a position where we will lend to companies uh, based on their, their earnings from 2019, as we've said. And, uh, and if they qualify, we will lend to them up to that limit. So we're willing to take that risk. Um, so I, I actually, as I mentioned in my remarks, I, I think we'll be in a position to help many, many, many companies. And I certainly hope that's the case with these facilities. We've, we frankly have helped uh, already through the announcement effect where we've, uh, where markets have really loosened up and started to function much better than they were just a couple of months ago at, at the peak of the, uh, uh, you know, the early part of the crisis where markets were we're not functioning well. So we see that and that's enabled many companies to funk, to, to finance themselves now. And that, that's a good thing. And it may mean that we actually don't, we are actually aren't needed. I think in main street though, those are companies that, that generally that don't have market access and, um, and they will need these loans. We will want to provide them. We are, let me just say about main street, this, this is a, for those who don't follow this maybe as closely, this is for companies that have, um, Fewer than five, less than five billion dollars in revenue. Fewer than fifteen thousand employees. Uh, it's probably going to be for companies that that don't have access to the capital markets or the syndicated loan market. So these are the great small and medium sized companies, and it's an incredibly diverse group of companies, very diverse industries and credit needs. And we're trying to create products with Main Street that address as broad a swath of those needs as we possibly can. It's also operationally. Uh, very complex. P people have credit agreements. They've got existing uh, uh, credit ex uh, agreements. So we have to work work through all of that. And we're in the process of doing that. I think Main Street will be able to go live in a few weeks. Um, so I, I am hopeful that we can meet the demand that is out there. We are committed to continuing to innovate and adapt as we've shown ourselves willing to do with these facilities. This is completely unique in our history. Uh, and so we're learning as we go. And, uh, you know, as we go, we'll, we'll continue to be willing to adapt. 
But you, you do, I didn't make this point in my remarks. We can make loans to solvent borrowers and uh, to solvent borrowers who don't have access to other private sources of capital. That's just what the law requires of us under 13.3 to make, to make a loan. And um, as I mentioned, the passage of time is really all it takes to turn a, sol a liquidity problem into a solvency problem. So we'll be, we'll be um, a big help for companies for a while, but over a longer period of time, uh, it, it may be that uh, that more fiscal help is needed. Now, again, I don't uh, I don't prescribe how or but I, I just say that um, it could be costly, but the benefits of it would also be potentially substantial. Thank you. Another thing where another area where you and your colleagues on the FOMC were ahead of the curve before the pandemic was you were putting new emphasis on the effect of events abroad on the U.S. economy, uh, not just the narrow trade role. Uh, Maury Obsfeld, you'll recall, did a great paper on that for the June Fed Listens Conference last year. I was wondering if you could take us through how you see what's happening in the rest of the world affecting the U.S. recovery right now and how you see the flight into the dollar, which obviously was enabled in huge ways by the swap lines that the Fed and its partner central banks provided, how that benefits the U.S. economy as well as the world. We are, of course, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, so we think it does matter. But what matters is what you think matters. Fair enough. Um, well, the global economy and even more so the global financial markets are tightly integrated at this point uh, in time. Uh, over the years, that's become more and more the case. So it is very much in our interest for the global economy to be strong. Uh, we need people to buy our exports, uh, and uh, just in general, we uh, we benefit from a stronger global economy. Um, uh, in terms of the um, the swap lines, so um, we are the world's reserve currency, and uh, all around the world, people fund economic activities from time to time in dollars. They buy U.S. dollar-denominated uh, credit assets, for example, U U.S. mortgage loans and things like that wind up being bought by, by foreign banks who want to fund those activities in dollars. So there are these dollar funding markets around the world, and they're actually uh, fairly important to the U.S. financial markets and the U.S. economy. They are effectively providing corp credit to U.S. households and businesses through these dollar funding markets. And you're right, as, um, as the reality of the pandemic uh, dawned in uh, a couple of months ago, there was a, understandably in financial markets, a flight to safety. And that meant short maturity. It meant fixed income. It meant U.S. dollar sovereign credit at the short end. And that left, um, you know, remarkable, uh, unprecedented levels of illiquidity in a number of markets. And we saw it in the uh, dollar, dollar swap markets. We saw a swap basis, uh, widening and uh, threatening, you know, those dollar funding markets and also played playing a role in what was happening in the U.S. Treasury market, which was becoming highly illiquid and, and uh, uh, more dysfunctional than, than we'd seen it. So this, what the swap lines do is they we provide uh, dollars, we swap dollars for a local currency with another central bank, and that central bank faces off against its banks and provides dollar funding to them. So dollar funding around the world. And it had a, had a very constructive effect on <clears throat> calming down those markets and, uh, you know, reducing the, the uh, safety premium for owning U.S. dollars. So it's, it's played a role in 
in supporting uh, return to more normal conditions in global financial markets. More broadly, I think what we've been able to do is to help markets return to more normal functioning, which has the effect of buying time, buying time for healthcare professionals, buying time for governments to respond at a time when the financial markets are working, the financial system is working, and we, we don't have to face uh, dysfunctional markets and the loss of credit availability, for example, to companies and, and households. So those measures, um, both the swap lines and the uh, facilities that we've done, uh, have really, I think, been somewhat effective at, at achieving that. Thank you so much, Jay. We're out of time, and you obviously have a world to continue to save. I just want to express my admiration for what you, the FOMC members, and the whole team at the Federal Reserve are doing. You're providing competence, calm, concern for the right issues, and nonpartisan fact-based work at a time when we need it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. All right. Uh, as you saw, Carl's audio uh, having a bit of issues there. Of course, we just heard from Chair Powell uh, giving some prepared remarks that our own Steve Leisman previewed for us at the top of the show and then going into some detail in terms of his views of the world. Of course, uh, I'll go to Steve now to sort of get his view on, on what he thought were the main points beyond, obviously, those prepared remarks. I certainly took note of the fact, Steve, given my focus on the capital markets, that he did say the Main Street lending program will go live in a few weeks. We've been waiting for a number of these programs to start kicking in in terms of the Treasury's funding of them. But what stood out to you? Yeah, David, uh, with a sharp newsman's eye, did you listen to the uh, uh, chairman there? You're right. That was one of the uh, news items that I bulleted. We've kind of known this was coming, but um, uh, him saying Main Street is coming in a few weeks and maybe a little bit longer than I thought it would be, actually. Uh, and another piece of little news in there, which uh, I think we also suspected, but uh, Powell suggesting that uh, those who can uh, apply for the Main Street Lending Facility, which is a $600 billion facility the Fed has yet to launch, uh, probably can't access capital markets. So uh, those who aren't issuing debt right now or public companies, it sounds like that will those will be uh, excluded from the program. A couple other things, uh, Dave, I want to come back to the outlook question in a second. He didn't slam the door entirely on negative rates, which was a big question in the market. But he closed it almost all the way. He said, I'm not getting, I'm not ruling out any tools, but this tool we don't like at all. Every, we're kind of united not liking it. It's very unlikely it's going to happen. Talked about the unemployment rate. He said, uh, it will decline sharply, but remain well above levels we saw this year and through 2018 and 2019. And just a quick word, David, on the uh, outlook, which is very pessimistic, I thought, in the um, uh, written speech where he said, uh, concerned about possible recession, a longer term, a little bit more upbeat about a possibility of a rebound uh, in the uh, Q&A section. But overall, this is a chairman who remains pretty downbeat and concerned about downside risks and seems to be going about as far as he's willing to go in urging Congress uh, to be prepared with additional programs in case this does not go well. Right. Um, didn't really take on the full question in terms of fiscal responsibility there or the fiscal side of it, Steve. Let's get to Mike uh, Santoli as well, get his reaction to both pa Chair Powell's remarks uh, and, of course, the, the uh, reaction in the stock market at this point. We did appear to be coming into the session with an uptick in the uh, S&P futures, Mike, but that has been reversed once trading has begun. 
Yeah, David, I mean, beginning yesterday, it seems as if just a slight change in emphasis or orientation among traders after a very good run in the markets to, to really not incorporate any new information. It's more just a matter of tone. It's more just, uh, you know, maybe reopening is not going to be smooth and all this other stuff. I do think that, you know, to Steve's point, uh, Chairman remains very focused on risk management, uh, certainly urging erring on the side of doing more, not less. Part of the premise of the, uh, the markets rally in the last several weeks has been that perhaps the fiscal measures combined with what the Fed is doing might be enough, uh, or at least what each next phase didn't require the market to have an additional new tantrum to get it. Uh, but I think that Powell is sort of saying, look, we're, we're trying to build a bridge. There's a risk it's a pier, and we have to try and, and maybe do more because there's going to be some wear and tear on the economy, on workers, on businesses the longer this goes. It's not just about uh, flipping a switch, which everybody knows, I think, intellectually, but it's a matter of how the market tries to metabolize all those factors. Carl, yeah, I'm Mike, sure we have Carl. Um, I thought we, it's hard to know how far to build. It's hard to know what kind of a bridge to build if you don't know how long it needs to be or uh, where it needs yeah. to go. Here's what uh, the Fed yeah, chair said a moment ago about the extraordinary circumstances we're in. The Fed takes actions such as these only in extraordinary circumstances like those we face today. For example, our authority to extend credit directly to private non-financial businesses and state and local governments exists only in unusual and exigent circumstances and with the consent of the Secretary of the Treasury. When this crisis is behind us, we will put these emergency tools away. Dow down 283 now, as futures uh, did uh, dip during Powell's uh, webcast. Let's get to Rick Santelli and get your thoughts on this this morning, Rick. Well, I, I find it all very fascinating. Let's start out with that last soundbite. He talked a great deal about how right now you have to prioritize differently than when we get on the other side, the backside of coronavirus. The problem is, is that makes good soundbites and dealing with conservative uh, issues regarding finance and how the Fed's balance sheet and some of these tools get put back in the toolbox for storage just really never occurred in full force after the last crisis. We barely contain quantitative easing. The Fed's balance sheet really never uh, reduced, got to the reduction levels that many of us thought. So I guess what I'm saying is this hole is going to be much deeper for obvious reasons. And the notion that you know, when it's all said and done, that the Fed is going to put these tools away. It seems to me that the more often they use them, the more often they get used, which really leads me to the most important point of the day, negative rates. Listen, the, the chairman, unlike me, is very measured and non-emotional, doesn't really get super passionate, which is probably the way you want your Fed chief. However, I thought he could have been much more intense on how he dealt with negative interest rates. And to be sure, if you looked at twos, they moved from about 14 and a half to 16 and a half. They basically moved close to two basis points when he was talking about negative rates. Tens, tens moved from, uh, I don't know, about 65 to 66 and a half. Uh, and you could tell the movement was parallel across the whole uh, yield curve because tens and twos is a 50 now. It was a 50 before Jay Powell spoke and the dollar index limited some of its losses. But in the end, uh, talking about, yeah, I don't think we're going to use it, it's not our favorite tool, is much different than saying, listen, why would we use it? Look at how wonderful it's done for Japan. They're, what, 250% of debt to GDP. Let's look at Europe. They can't get out of negative rates. Their banks are basically broke. I mean, I think it would have been much better if he wouldn't have just 
kind of very flippantly says, no, it's not in our toolbox, and really addressed why it should never be in their toolbox. But that's just me. Carl, back to you. Yeah, indeed, uh, Ricky did not say that, although uh, the uh, unanimous nature of the rejection of the policy in those October uh, minutes was interesting. Steve, I'm curious. I mean, one of the stats that stood out was this number uh, of those who worked in February. Forty uh, percent of households who make less than forty thousand dollars a year lost a job in March. He did say in terms of uh, unemployment that he thought although unemployment would remain well above recent years levels for years, he did think we could get back there. Uh, what was your take on his uh, thoughts on Nehru? Um, yeah, just real quick, uh, Carl, I just want to go back to what Rick was talking about and you. Uh, the chairman specifically did say that one of the reasons he doesn't want to use negative rates is because it hasn't shown to be very effective in places where it has been named. So I think it's all fair game to criticize the chairman, but not for something that he just actually said, which was that they don't very seem effective. to work in very other places. Effective is much different. A lot of debate very effective, about it. Sorry, very effective is much different than saying uh, the reasons why. Well, I, very, it's not very effective it, to me. Is he, is very he sanitized. Laid out the, he, he exactly laid out the reasons why. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but not, we'll not read our the own commentary facts, later, Rick. Steve. Let me, let me go I guarantee on. you, but, he didn't but, slam the door shut. But not he our own set of facts, Rick. Click. No, it isn't. He exactly it's your said interpretation said it, versus okay. mine. Right, right, right. And, and no, I, I don't I care if I offend the Fed as much as you do, I guess. There you go. I don't care either. I just care to report what he said. But anyway, let me go on and answer uh, this Nehru question. Uh, that, that, that gets to the whole um, uh, underlying issue Carl, about the outlook here, which is the extent to which you're doing permanent damage. You, you heard Adam Posen mention this concept called hysteresis. It's, it, it's a concept, uh, think about a couch when you sit in it, and then you get up, it's supposed to bounce back up. Well, what if when you sit in it and you get up, the cushion doesn't bounce back up? And that, that is a situation where you have a rise in the unemployment rate, you come back to potential economic growth, and you don't get back to the unemployment rate you had before. It's this idea of long-term damage. His uh, concept that essentially you have a liquidity problem now that over time could turn into a solvency problem. Uh, and I think you're right. He's, he's doing risk management here and he's saying, look, when I look at the worst possible outcomes, the worst possible outcome is uh, that this thing goes on longer. You talked about this metaphor of building bridges. I think it's a really smart one. What I think Powell is saying here is get the barges ready build the pylons, and get ready to put those things in the water to expand or lengthen this bridge because you may need it sooner than you think. Yeah. Um, Steve, also interesting to hear his, uh, his somewhat, I wouldn't say emotional, but his, his comments on small and medium-sized businesses and what that means to sort of the fabric of society far beyond just the economic toll uh, that losing many of those businesses will take as well. I want to bring in Jim Cramer, who unexpectedly can't seem to stay away from the office. Well, I was at the beach, um, right? Two minutes at the beach yeah. and I'm back. I Go ahead, David. <laughs> you know, I actually can see you now, Jim. So I saw that you had on the sunglasses. We have now Do- in this house what I, we call return. Five, so in five I can actually see you. Okay, so listen, um, I, yeah. I look at this thing very differently so, from what these guys are saying. Uh, now we got two guys. We got Fauci and we got Powell saying that the president's wrong. Fauci yesterday totally con- contradicts the president. Makes us feel like if we reopen up, look out, sudden storm coming. Uh, Powell just makes me feel like, you know, hey, this thing's shot. 
We're not going to get anything. It's way, way too long. You better go right with Pelosi right now, which is completely the opposite of what the president wants, and get the uh, $3 trillion program going because we're going to need it. So you've got the president on one hand saying, listen, this is going to be the strongest economy in history. It's really going to come back. Everything's great. And then you've got two really powerful people, Powell and Fauci, saying, "Uh, ain't coming together. So I don't know. Uh, it looks yeah. like Pelosi's plan, <clears throat> excuse me, Pelosi's plan is the one that uh, Powell wants, especially after what you said about small, medium-sized business. I totally agree with you, Dave. Emotional right, well, appeal you, for you, dry cleaners and hair Yeah, spots. that was. No. Emotional. That, that was notable um, and, and, and important, I think, because Very. it does go beyond sort of to the broader impact of losing all of these, potentially losing these businesses, hopefully not. Jim, uh, somebody else who, you know, sometimes we take note of is Stan Druckenmiller, the right. former hedge fund manager. Um, you know, saying last night, I think it was uh, remarks, uh, an interview he did for the, with the Economic Club in New York, no chance of a V recovery. It's a fantasy. Talking about an overvalued uh, stock market at this point uh, and just generally being quite negative on the prospects for the U.S. economy overall. Uh, he says, I pray I'm wrong, but it's just a fantasy. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, we've heard uh, Stan periodically be incredibly negative. You remember, David, when he was calling for uh, he thought rates were going to go up dramatically during uh, delivering alpha. It, it was a seminal moment. We picked it up. We ran with it. We took it for days, for days. And I think Stan's a good guy, smart guy. But you know what? There are two markets here. There's the stock market. And then there's the real market. And we know that there are uh, no, there's, uh, look, $11 trillion worth of stocks that do well with COVID. And he also caveated it by saying the, the Fed's going to pump as much money in, so be careful shorting it. You know, I look at the market today and I say it opens down. And then the same thing had. There's the Shopify that starts going up. Next thing you know, oh, we got everything falling. Next thing you know, what do you got? Well, you got a lot of the different uh, te- Tesla turns around. How can Tesla not turn around? I mean, isn't that what we have? Uh, so all the stocks that come to play every day, Amazon, right back. Uh, so I don't know what Stan has to say about the fact that there's so much money being made in, in a lot of stocks. Yeah, Jim, uh, NASDAQ uh, up 17 uh, percent over 12 months. Uh, despite Mike Santoli, what Powell just said about uh, the biggest disruption to our economy in, in modern times. And then there's the added question, Mike, about what it's going to take for the S&P to bust out of this range between the 50 and the 200 day. Yeah, well, that's the other part of it, right? I mean, even if you didn't know what was going on in the world, and I know you can't shut that out, but if you just looked at, oh, we just rallied 35 percent up into an area that, you know, has proved pretty hard in the prior year and all along the way. Uh, and by the way, it's been a kind of a narrow rally in this last little phase, and maybe it's time for some consolidation. And the put call ratio got really low, so maybe the hot money was a little too overeager for the upside. All that put that together and say, yeah, you're probably at some point going to have to back off a little bit. So I don't necessarily see the rhythm of the market as being out of joint with what's happening in the world. The other part of, you know, look at, uh, at Stan Druckenmiller's comments, this whole idea of it's not going to be a V recovery in the economy is a complete straw man right now. You can't find anybody who actually thinks it's a true V where we go back to a $21.5 trillion GDP pace where we were in January, you know, as fast as we came down. There's just nobody saying that. And the market is not positioned or priced for that, as Jim was saying. Michael, there is one guy who's saying, right? There's one guy saying, the president of the United States. It's a straw man for everybody else except for him. You're totally right. But the president believes in V for victory. 
What do you, so what do you believe, Jim? Is this a transition I'm to totally greatness the way the president says? I'm totally or are you going with Druckenmiller? We haven't mentioned Buffett Munger or Icon or any of the other giants who basically echoed what Druckenmiller said, maybe to lesser degrees. Well, look, I mean, these are really rich people who don't need to do a thing. Uh, they can just ride it out. We listen to Buffett. It, look, I think Warren Buffett's the greatest investor ever. But what did Becky have? He, she had a series of questions about why he's underperformed, why bought the airlines, worst, you know, terrible performing group. I prefer the cruise lines to the airlines. But uh, there are lots of stocks. I just want to use a classic example of what these guys never do. They never, ever talk about stocks. They talk about the market. And that's where they go wrong. So this morning, there's a piece by Morgan Stanley, which says one of the greatest performing stocks of this era, Adobe, may have real problems. That's right. Adobe's clients may be strapped. The stock should be down 25 bucks, right? I mean, it was just a terrible piece. I read it. I said, oh, boy, here we go. This is going to be one of the situations where we're finally going to get a stock that's got negative heat from a major supporter, Morgan Stanley. And, yeah, absolutely gets hammered. Uh, and, and now it's barely down. And, and I, I don't know. That's the way of the world. They don't look at individual stocks. They're too small. Stan Druckenmiller is a big thinker. These are too small. And when you break it down from the top, yes, he's going to be right. But when you look at what our viewers are looking at, they're saying, what is he talking about? Amazon is unbelievable. It's time to buy Walmart. Have you seen Target? But those things are too small. These guys are huge thinkers. They're thinking about they're thinking about the all sorts of currencies around the world, the bonds. And I love that. I love big thinkers. But our viewers are not doing that. Our viewers are not going pound versus dollar. Our viewers are looking at Amazon and saying, why did that guy keep me out of Amazon? He didn't. But Amazon, pretty good stock. Yep. Yep. Um, Jim, you kind of indicated this earlier. It's the staying rich crowd versus the getting rich yeah. crowd. And, uh, they don't really you know, want us to get rich, do they? He's in, the, he's in the staying rich crowd. <laughs> how about, um, the, um, how about the, uh, uh, Dalio? Remember the day that Dalio came? How about the day the, um, the guy who did it hit big in Chipotle? The, the guy who had to fight with the with the, the Carl Icahn, the guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, he the guy who gave with, us Ron Johnson at J.C. Penney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I know that guy. Uh, yeah. Gotham. Yeah, 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 Gotham. Yeah, guy. Gotham City. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he came on and yeah, basically said, look, you know, it, it, it's it's a thermonuclear winter, even though it's the spring and you, know, you break down crying. And, 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 and what was he like short or something? I've had it with the guys who are billionaires. I mean, just can you please does just that include, get a so big that, yacht. Does that include Tepper, Jim? Does that include Tepper and, no, and the Tepper game changer that he scientist. talked about at the Super Bowl with Tepper, you? Tepper was a scientist. <laughs> Tepper said to me, did you read the Lancet article? I think this thing could be really horrible. And I had just read the Lancet article because I really didn't care. The Eagles weren't in the game. And I said, oh, my God, the Lancet article. That is pan- it is it's, it, 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 it's contagion written by Larry Brilliant, by the way, a fantastic doctor. It, 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 it's pandemic. It's it. It's it's Yes. It's the Lincoln Tunnel scene in the book, The Stand. Stephen King has so far been the best person, better than Fauci, much better than Fauci in terms of what this thing is. So let's just not forget, Tepper was based on science. These other guys were, I mean, because Tepper liked it until the science said, look out. You know, look, Dalio's science, but Dalio said it was the end of the world. Tepper never said it was the end of the world. He just said, why aren't more people talking about this pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I think the yeah. Tepper switches to Tepper's not about trying to keep anybody out of it. 
From the day I met Tepper and he screamed at me and told me I was an idiot, which I liked because I was uh, on a bond deal that, I, that he didn't want me to sell. I looked at him and said, you know what, he's not ideological and he's willing to switch direction. But I know that when most of these guys, the billionaires, when they come on and they tell you things, it's not for you. It's for them. And God love them. It's right. They're not here to make you money. They're here to make the, they're not here to do anything other than expound on their view. But they are not going to look at Fang. They are never going to look at Facebook. It's too small. They're never going to talk about Netflix. It's too small. And yet our viewers are not trying to figure out about the 10 versus the two. They're just not. They're not. Uh, well, speaking, speaking of Netflix, it is up about 1.7%. And Tesla, happily, is also up a bit. Oh, oh, let's go. get back to the Fed. Those com- things the, refuse. The comments they, from, those stocks refuse to listen yeah. to Drucker Miller. They just refuse. They refuse, David. They're just they saying, do. screw you, Dr. Miller. No, but they don't even know who he is. They don't know who Drucker Miller is. They just, they like the new no. slate. They like the new slate. What are you watching, David? Yeah. The new Kimmy? Yeah. Is Kimmy, they got Kimmy back or something? Yeah, there's a lot. I heard that. I haven't seen that. Falda, um, the new downbeat. We're working Falda, through. We're working Bauer, through some Falda. library stuff now. Oh, uh, I'm not, wait, you know, and I'm waiting for the HBO Max, by the way, to start hitting. And hey, you know, John Stanky actually, That's who's going to be us? the new CEO of AT and T, is uh, was talking this morning as well. Go buy some about check. HBO Max, which Go is buy some check. Going to be launching every day. By the way, yeah. Why didn't you tell me that three months ago? Not that I, I could did. buy. I said it, it was in three. Stocks. I recommended it yeah. three. Even he didn't like it. No, you did. You did. He, he you cri- did. He came on the show. He was crying. And I said, listen, Dan Rosenzweig, you'll come out of this. You're a good guy. This stock's a buy. Is it 64? It is. Um, Leesman is still there. I want to get back to you, Steve. Listen, I was focused on, you know, the Main Street lending program. I'm curious as to your thoughts. He didn't mention it at all about um, you know, uh, buying ETFs, bond ETFs. We didn't really get much on on those programs that I sort of am trying to keep track of in terms of, A, their importance, but B, how the Fed is sort of intervening in various markets. Well, they're not doing a whole lot of intervening, David. The big the big issue is how many of these programs have not yet launched. I have a full screen, guys, if you want to get it from the uh, 730 hour called Fed's Unfinished Business, where I list them all. I'll see if I can do off the top of my head. The Main Street Lending Facility, $600 billion not open, we hear today for the next couple of weeks. Corporate bonds is a $750 billion program. That's only partially open. The secondary market where they're buying ETFs, just a small piece of that is open. Municipal bonds, $500 billion, not open yet. We got some details yesterday uh, about additional uh, lending uh, terms there. And then the $100 billion TALF, which where they're buying asset backed, not open yet. As you know, David, though, a very interesting characteristic of this is some of these markets have improved upon announcement that the Fed would be involved. So the Fed may feel it has some time. It wants to get these things right. It watched the criticism over PPP uh, and, and said, you know what, we don't need to go there in terms of the political backlash. And I think finally it's fine tuning, David. Where does the Fed come in? This is the big question. Does it come in below market? At market, does it try to roll back the clock to 2019? These are the questions the Fed's trying to figure out. Again, it's never done these things before. It's never faced the public in such a way, never faced the states, never faced the corporations. I know it's trying to get it done, but, you know, they move deliberately. Steve, thanks. Uh, a remarkable hour. Uh, markets down uh, 220 on the Dow, session low 292 as the Markets continue to wrestle with the promise of reopening versus the worries about a surge in new cases. We'll take a break and be back in a minute. 
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Fed takes actions such as these only in extraordinary circumstances, like those we face today. For example, our authority to extend credit directly to private non-financial businesses and state and local governments exists only in unusual and exigent circumstances and with the consent of the Secretary of the Treasury. When this crisis is behind us, we will put these emergency tools away. Fed Chair Powell earlier this morning at the Peterson Institute. Jim, we talked a bit about that. Of course, you'll cover more on Mad Money tonight. Oh, yeah. I mean, I want to talk about how a deal like the Carnival Cruise deal, which was going to be at much higher interest rates until Powell said he is interested in buying bonds, was able to be done at low interest rate. And Carnival was obviously the epicenter of, uh, uh, of the, the entire incident. By the way, the customers seem to like it. The bookings are fantastic for Carnival. I will. Ha- I know. Um, I'll have Cisco on tonight. I think that'll be great bellwether of the real economy. Once again, when the Fed pumps money in, you buy, not sell. And I always appreciate listening to rich people. I really want to know more about their yachts. I think that's exciting. Uh, I like to just dream of it one day. But I don't really care for what they have to say about the market because you only need to get rich once. (laughs) All right. Well, we do care what Mike Santoli has to say about the market, Jim. We'll give him a last word here in terms of uh, where we are a half hour into trading. Mike? Yeah, I mean, it looked like a final hour shakeout yesterday. Obviously, can't really say how the day is going to go. But once again, the Nasdaq is uh, is kind of holding things together. Uh, and I do think that, uh, you know, sideways and slop around for a little while is not the worst thing. You have 5% downside in the S&P, I think, before you have to say that this last leg of the rally uh, is really undermined in any way. So that's that's kind of where we are. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.